Well, tonight, um, I don't have a handout for you or anything like that. I don't have a PowerPoint behind me. So we're just going to rely upon the Bible, which is not a bad place to be, right? So would you please take out your Bible, if you have one. We're going to be in Acts chapter 28. And if you don't have one, there's certainly ones underneath your pew. What I'm going to do tonight is uh, cover the end of this book. This is the very last chapter. And uh, there's a reason that I'm covering that one. It's, it's always been one that's fascinated me. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read part of it and then kind of explain it and then move on and explain a, another part until we get to the end. So we'll take it bit by bit. So hopefully you'll be able to follow along with me as we kind of progress through this text. Okay? But um, I was... I was Talking to Sarah this afternoon, as, as I said, she was gone with the kids uh, over the weekend with the reeds uh, just for a few days, and now she's back, actually. Um, but I was telling her, I said, oh, I was really, I was fairly p- pleased with how things went this morning, but the only thing that bothered me was that I couldn't find my Martin Luther costume. That would have made everything just perfect. And she said, it's in your office. <laughs> and I looked, and she was right. Yeah. So this whole time, while I was studying this week, and for weeks and weeks and weeks, it's been sitting right there. So what do you know? Next, next year, perhaps. Okay. By the way, there are books in the back um, at the, the library table, which uh, Sarah put up last week, um, some books that pertain to pastor's evening message, which I'm not going to try and continue here tonight, uh, on what is righteousness. So that's the long table. And then immediately to the left of that is a few books on the gospel, on the Reformation, on figures of the Reformation like John Calvin and Martin Luther, and, uh, and other various things, uh, even children's books as well. So if you want to t- check that out, uh, I'd highly recommend the one by uh, Dr. Stephen Nichols. He was one of our professors at Lancaster Bible College when we were there, and he has a great, real easy read on who Martin Luther was. Uh, if you want to pick that up, that's out there. Okay, everybody go, run for it. There's one copy. No, just kidding. We won't do that. Uh, but if you're interested in that sort of thing, like something good to read, there you go. Well, uh, I'm going to pick this, this text to explain tonight because I find it fascinating. Fascinating and also frustrating, in a way. Because here we have the end of the book of Acts, and um, it doesn't end the way you'd expect Okay, And I know this is going to be hard to explain the ending of a book without explaining the beginning, but hopefully I'll try and bring you up to speed so you understand where I'm coming from. Most books of the Bible have a nice, neat ending. Okay, And, and you can just, as you're thinking through the 66 books of the Bible, you can kind of think of what, what I'm talking about here. You think of the end of Deuteronomy, for example. Uh, chapter 34 says, Since then, and this is one of my favorite verses, by the way, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these miraculous signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the officials in the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds as Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I love that. That just seems like an epilogue to a great movie, doesn't it? You know, this is one of my favorite uh, verses. You know, somebody says, what's what your life verse? Well, I don't know if I have a life verse, but that's just a cool, a cool verse I love to read. The book of Matthew also ends pretty well. Uh, great Commission, okay? We, we remember the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every, every creature. Ruth ends with the main character married and the genealogy of David. However, some books don't end so nicely. Um, the, the book of Jonah is one of these. It ends with the prophet, of all things, pouting under a tree and waiting for the destruction of Nineveh. Very strange way to end the book. Gospel of Mark has a disputed ending about the handling of snakes and drinking poison. Look into that sometime. It's, it's very, very fascinating. And then there's the book of Acts. 
Okay? The book of Acts is one of the most frustrating endings of any book of the Bible, in my opinion. Why? Because it leaves us hanging. It leaves us hanging. After uh, so many chapters of the Apostle Paul, which the book focuses on the ministry of the Apostle Paul more than anybody, okay, it's mostly a book about the acts of the Holy Spirit, really. It's not about any one individual, but what the Holy Spirit did through these individuals. But if you look at who is mentioned the most, we could certainly say it's the Apostle Paul. And it goes through all these trials of his, and each of them lead up to this place where he's going to go before Caesar, the most powerful individual in the entire uh, you know, period of time that he's living in. Wow, that's exciting. You know, when you get to that midpoint of Acts and you say, he's, he's appealed to Caesar, he's going to go to, to speak in front of the Roman emperor, you think, man, that's amazing. I can't imagine what it would be like to appear before somebody so powerful and get to share the gospel to this powerful figure. So Paul goes on trip after trip, and finally he arrives in Rome, and we get the sense... Uh, that he is awaiting this, this fantastic moment where he can stand before the ruler of the entire Roman Empire. And then the book ends. The book stops right there and you don't get to see what happens to Paul and, and Caesar. And I get to the end and I'm like, ah, what's going on? You're missing a few chapters. What's, what's wrong here? Uh, it's always bothered me. Like, there's something missing. Like, we were building it up to this great moment and had my attention and everything, and then just, it just stops. And I've often wondered, why is this left out? If we were built up to that place where he's kind of going up the chain higher and higher to all these different Roman governors and officials, and they keep punting it down the line and bringing him to somebody higher, and he's finally made it even to Rome, why doesn't it say that? Why doesn't it tell us what happens? Well, um, knowing that God does not make mistakes, he must have written it that way for a purpose, right? It's not like God is in heaven saying, oh, I, you know, I, I would have included that, but I just forgot. I'm sorry. I, I forgot to give you the last few chapters of, of it. You know, like he was typing up an email and hit send too early, okay? No, it's, that's not how God works. We know that. So what is it trying to teach us here? Clearly, there must be something else going on. Clearly, my way of reading it must be the wrong way because God doesn't make mistakes and he must have left it out for a reason and there must be something I'm missing. So when I realized this, I thought, well, this is worth a study. This is worth a sermon because, um, you know, what, what is that purpose? If it's not to get to Caesar, what is the purpose of the end of the book of, of Acts? And uh, we'll find that out together. Um, if we would have written this ourselves, okay, um, we would have traced it all the way in a straight line, how Paul went from one place to the next to get to the emperor. But here in Acts 25, 28, we'll find that uh, we'll find the story uh, seems to go off topic and get sidetracked. Or does it? And uh, as we read, we'll find out. So let's start here. Acts 28, hopefully you're there. We'll start with verses 1 through 10. And again, I'll read this section by section for you. It says, after we, this is Paul, and Luke is the author here, so he's included as well. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. 
He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And now in the neighborhood of that place in the lands were the lands belonging to a chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius laid sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people of the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Okay, so let's start with some background here. Okay, this is the opening part of our passage. Uh, It's impossible for me to sum up all of the Apostle Paul's tracks here in the book of Acts, but we'll just try to summarize some of of these ones in the later chapters. In Acts 18, Paul began his third missionary journey, and this is really helpful. If you go online or if you have a study Bible, you can look up in the maps in the back. You can see often the missionary journeys of Paul, and they'll map them out in in a, a sense of where he went from place to place. So if you want to go back and look at that, that's, that's helpful at this point. But um, this is the third missionary journey. And in this journey, Paul sails to several different locations, but eventually ends up in Jerusalem, teaching in the temple in Acts 21. The Jews start a riot and try to kill him, but he's taken away by the Roman guards, and so he's kept safe that way. And he's brought to this Felix, a Roman governor of Judea, and that's where Paul stands trial. Now, the Jews have been trying to capture Paul or kill him for quite some time, and this time they're finally successful in at least bringing him to trial. Now, Felix doesn't find him guilty at all, but he doesn't set him free either, so Paul has to remain in prison for a while. And while he's in prison, unfortunately, Felix dies. So he's kind of stuck there. He's, he's just in limbo for a little bit. And so his successor, Festus, hears him again. He can't decide what to do, and so he sends him to King Agrippa. So Paul keeps going up and up the chain, as I said before, and finally, he appeals his case to Caesar rather than risk returning to Jerusalem. And so in Acts 27... Paul sails to Rome with other prisoners to stand before Caesar. Now, it's not that he wanted to complain about the the Jewish people. It's just that he he had some charges brought against him, and he wanted to have this settled so that he could be safe and also so that he could testify to the grace of the Lord Jesus. So this is why he he was forced to to appeal in this way. So on this journey, he, he encounters a storm, and the whole crew is shipwrecked. And that brings us to chapter 28, which I just read for you. Paul's ship is wrecked at the island of Malta. The passengers make it to shore, and the text tells us that Paul gathers wood to make a fire. And as he's gathering this firewood, it says he's bitten by a viper. Now, the people are familiar with this kind of creature. They know that normally a person who gets bitten in this way is going to die, or they're going to start experiencing some pretty crazy symptoms real soon. And they look with anticipation to see what's going to happen. And, uh, and nothing happens to him. And they're, they're just fascinated. They're, they can't believe it. The natives knew these snakes. They knew what should have happened. Surely they reasoned um, that Paul must have done something very bad when they first saw this snake bite on, onto his hand and that he was going to pay for it. But Paul merely shook off this viper into the fire, and then the natives looked on him with great interest. Um, 
Then they changed their minds, and, and instead of thinking that he was being punished by God for something, or punished by their gods, um, they went too far over the other side and assumed that he was a god, somebody with extreme uh, miraculous power. Um, but the point I think that God was trying to make and that Paul was, uh, uh, that, that God was trying to make here was that Paul was not being, in fact, judged by God, but rather he was approved by God. This would have gotten people's attention for sure. But this is not the only miracle that took place on the island during Paul's stay. The ship happened to run aground near the fields owned by the governor of the island. So how amazing is that? Okay, you might say, well, Pastor Dave, why are we spending all this time in this story? Well, there's some amazing things that happened in this seeming uh, sidetrack of, of Paul's journey to get to Rome. And here, of all people, while he's on this, this island, he runs into the governor. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Whereas somebody might have seen this as a, a freak accident, something that just was totally unplanned, totally random, God was at work. And uh, this wouldn't have been an easy group to host for the governor. For Acts 27, 37 tells us that there were 276 people on this ship. Just to give you an idea of how many people are stranded here. Providentially, uh, this governor was probably the only man on the island who was wealthy enough to be able to handle such a crowd. So again, you know, unless you're taking this as some sort of extreme coincidence, which it's not, it's God's plan, he puts them right into the hands of, of this Publius, this person who could help them in a way that nobody else could have. And that's amazing. Uh, Paul learned that the father of this, this governor was ill and went to see him. And after praying, Paul put his hands on him and healed him. And it didn't take long for this news to spread, of course. And then people came from all over the island to be healed. These healings, in addition to this viper incident we just read about, would have given Paul a credibility that would have opened the doors for evangelism among these people. And I believe Paul took that opportunity. It doesn't really go into those kind of details for us, but knowing the kind of character Paul is, you have to imagine that he would have taken this opportunity to witness and share as he's speaking with these natives, the native people in Malta. Um, what we do see here is that when Paul and his companions were preparing to leave Malta for Rome, the native people generously provided them with all the supplies they needed. So here's my question. What's the purpose of this chapter since the ultimate destination, Paul's meeting with Caesar, is never mentioned? Well, in this case, in this particular section of the story, I think that God is saying that the trip itself was just as important as the destination. You see, if Paul would have been only focused on reaching Caesar, then he might have just brushed this aside as an inconvenience, as something that's really ruined his plans, and now he's just got to get out of this island, get away from here as, as fast as he can so he can reach his, his real destination. But God, and Paul in, intended, excuse me, God intended Paul's ministry not just to be for one man, namely Caesar, but for many. And the result is that the islanders on Malta experience the power of Jesus Christ through this simple um, interaction between Paul and, and this snake or Paul running into the governor of the island and healing his father. It's hard for me to imagine that Paul would have not shared the gospel with these people while they were healed. But even aside from these witnessing opportunities, and that is huge, the fact that he was able to be there and witness in this way, I think we're even to see here just how Paul's presence brought blessing to those around him. 
even if the people didn't believe in Christ, which it doesn't say what their response to him was. Think of how they benefited by being with Paul. Because of him, the other passengers were saved. Because Paul saved the governor's father, verse 10 says, they honored us in many ways. So you see, just by having him around, many acts of grace came to the people of the ship and the island. And you might ask, why would God do these things for people if he wasn't going to save them? To demonstrate his goodness, is what I'd say. And to just shower his grace upon people. You know, God showers grace upon people all the time without the gospel being presented. When God provides the rain for the just and the unjust, that's God being kind to all humanity, regardless of whether they worship him or not. And you know, some people ask, what's the benefit of us doing something like a family fun day if we don't get many converts? If there are not a, people who come, a lot of people who come to Christ or, or come to this church, we're being a blessing to the world around us, just like Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. You know, that's a valid uh, task for us as Christians as well. Not just to think of everybody as a target, you know, to witness to, and if that doesn't work out, well, then they don't count. It doesn't matter. But you know what? We're, we're put on this earth to bless others in our everyday lives, just in what we do. And by being kind to one another, loving one another, even if everybody does not come to faith, we've shown the love of Christ, we've shown the character of God, and that has value. That has value. So this trip wasn't a waste. No matter what the, the uh, condition of the individuals who were receiving this uh, was. Even more than this, though, we see from this particular passage that God is faithful to his promise. So what else do we learn here? God's faithful. God's faithful. God promised Paul in a dream that he would go before Caesar. In chapter 27, and if you just kind of look back a few verses, chapter 7, tw- uh, sorry, 27, verses 23 through 25, in the midst of a violent storm at sea, uh, Paul said this, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, uh, granted you all those who sail with you, yes. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. You see, God promised that Paul would make it to his destination. And in a way, that's pretty cool. Even though we don't have the ending of the book of Acts, we know what happened, because God promised it. He said, you are going to stand before Caesar. So before I I caught this, it was a few years ago and I was reading this, I thought, Man, I wish I knew uh, what happened at the end of this book or past the, the contents of this book. Uh, does he make it? Does he not? Well, I, I had ignored this verse. It says very clearly he did. God promised, and I believe he kept that promise. So we know that that's what was going to take place, but we also see how that affects Paul and the way he thinks of God um, because he has this promise in his heart. Imagine if you had a promise today that God, God tells you, and say you're in your 20s or whatever, that you're going to live to age 95. How would that change you, you think? You might uh, say, well, I, I, don't, I don't have to worry about driving in my car. Hopefully you wouldn't go and do something reckless. <laughs> but you could at least say, you know what? If I'm going to make it to age 95, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I could fly in a plane. I'm not going to die in a plane crash, you know. God's promised it, so it's going to happen, okay? And as long as we don't misuse that and go nuts or something like that, I mean, uh, we'll be all right. But but, but he says here, for sure, you are going to make it. You are going to survive. You're going to get to Rome. And Paul believes it. And that translates into faith and into encouraging words that he shares with people on the ship. So we don't have that kind of a promise 
of course. We don't have a promise that we're going to live to age 95. We don't have a specific promise like Paul did. But how would it change us if we truly believed God's promises? We do have promises that Christ will come again. That much is true. Even if we don't have a specific promise about how long we'll live or who we're going to see or all these other specifics, we do know that Christ is coming again. We do know how the world is going to end. And you know what? That's, that actually brings me a great deal of comfort. And when I see all these different like science documentaries and things and people say, oh, the earth could be destroyed by a, a, a meteor or something, I just shrug and say, nah, it's not going to happen that way. I know it's not going to happen that way. I know that God has promised otherwise. And in that sense, it brings me peace. There's not all the details in the world that God has revealed to us about what the future is going to look like, specifically for my life or maybe for yours, but we know the big picture. And that does bring us comfort. It brings us confidence. It brings us faith. And you know, knowing that you have eternal life waiting for you can bring you greater confidence to share, even if it means you might be persecuted for it. Imagine how that kind of knowledge might influence somebody who is living at another part of the world right this very moment with the threat of ISIS maybe invading their village tonight. How might that change you if that were you? You see, it it changed Paul a great deal, and it influenced his faith. My point is that believing in God's promises changes our outlook on life. Let's move on. Acts 28, now verses 11 through 16. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after a day, uh, after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome." And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here as as we get some more of the travel details here of Paul and his companions. Luke is telling our readers, uh, telling us, telling the readers, uh, how he made it from Malta to Rome. They found another ship that wintered nearby so they could take passage. And um, why does Luke tell us that there's this figurehead of twin gods on the ship who are worshipped as the sons of Zeus? Well, these are gods that the heathen looked to for safety when navigating the seas. It shows that they were not true believers in the God of, of heaven. And once again, God is going to show his superiority to these beliefs systems. Just like God disapproved of this God of justice that we talked about when Paul was bitten by the viper, you saw the, the J was capitalized there. They were referring to a God of theirs. Here, he's going to show he's greater than these two figurehead gods that are appealing, appearing on this ship. Uh, it's not Castor and Pollux, those two gods, that would grant them safe voyage. It's God. And after wintering on this uh, island of Malta for three months, they set sail again, making port at Syracuse, an important city of Sicily. And then they sailed to Regium, which, if you're familiar with the shape of of Italy, looks like a boot, okay? This would be on the toe of it, okay? Uh, Making good time, they arrived at Putoli in a couple of days, and that city was apparently the place where the Egyptian wheat ships made port and unloaded their cargo, There were believers there in Putoli, and so Paul and his companions were allowed to stay with them for a week. From this point, 
Paul and the others would travel by land. Believers in Rome uh, had received Paul's epistle to the Romans, so that's pretty neat. By the end of this book, they've already received that letter, which we spoke of this morning, so that's where it is on the timeline at least. And uh, when they heard of his arriving, a number went out to meet him, traveling 30 or 40 miles to do so. Paul was greatly encouraged to see them and thank God for this. So Luke mentions something in verse 16, which at first glance may appear to be insignificant. It says, Paul was allowed to live, look at this, by himself in Rome with a soldier guarding him. That's pretty exceptional treatment. If we could just stop and, and observe that for a second. Do you think that other prisoners, especially any who were condemned to death, would have been allowed such freedom? If you think of just the kind of conditions that would have existed back then in those kinds of prisons, how much better it is that he's allowed to stay in his own house uh, just with a simple guard uh, next to him, uh, keeping watch over him. The rest were probably uh, herded in some crowded prison, um, but Paul's rented accommodations must have been rather spacious to accommodate the large groups that came to hear him. And this seemingly insignificant detail is God's providential provision of a place for Paul to entertain and teach people without hindrance. Let's move on. Verses 17 through 24. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect that we know that everywhere is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Okay, so again, let's just put ourselves on the map here. He is in Rome at this point. And Paul had intended to visit Rome earlier in his travels, but now he's finally there. Maybe not in the way that he would have hoped. Originally, I'm sure he would have rather come by his own uh, power, in his own freedom, but here he's kind of forced to because he's being transported to get there to stand before Caesar and he's under house arrest. Um, nevertheless, God promised Paul that he would make it to Rome, and we already observed that. Back in Acts 23.11, he says, have courage, just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And now Paul was in Rome, and it would be tempting to look back on Acts 23.11 and think that this is solely referring to him seeing Caesar. But if we were to do so, we would be missing out on a lot of what God really intended for Paul. You see, God is setting up not only a meeting with Caesar, but also tremendous opportunities for Paul to witness along the way. And when Paul gets to Rome, he isn't just solely focused on the task uh, that he originally had, that is, talking to the emperor, but he is um, also open to all these other things that God is bringing into his life. He's not blind to what God is trying to show him. He has an open heart about him. 
He sees this as an opportunity to witness. And it says after three days, Paul contacts the Jewish leaders and invites them to visit him in his rented quarters. So you see what he does. He immediately takes advantage of the blessings he has been given. And normally a prisoner would be shoved into a prison, as I said, with many other people. Paul here was given his own house. And you know what? He takes that blessing and figures out a way to use it for the gospel. He can host a lot of people. Now, I want you to step back from the situation and imagine yourself if you were in this place. Okay, can you imagine what your attitude might be? Let's say you were hoping just to go uh, and continue on your missionary journey, and now all of a sudden you are in the hands of the Roman government, and you're being transported to this place, and now you're under house arrest. Now, I've been described in a very positive way in light of all the other situations he could have been in, but... Let's, let's remember, he is still under Roman guard. He is in a place where he probably wouldn't have wanted to be. What would your attitude be if you were in that, that place? Would you just be complaining the whole time? Maybe I would be. Saying, you know, this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not the plan that I had. I should be elsewhere, and now I'm stuck here. And further, I don't even know what's going to happen to me. Let's not lose sight of the fact that he could lose his life. And he's going to very shortly, as far as we know from church history. You know, he knows he's going to stand before Caesar, but we don't know what the emperor is going to do with him. So how would you react? And you know, we've been talking a lot about this very, very thing in uh, Sunday school lately. I'm, I'm studying uh, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. It's a book on uh, the will of God. And, and often, these kind of questions enter in our life. You know, what happens when the plans that we've had, and we've lined up, and we've thought through... And we've just planned out, what happens when they suddenly go awry? Is everything messed up? Are we out of the will of God? Is something wrong? Did I do something wrong? You know, Paul doesn't get hung up on those kinds of things. He's not just stuck here wondering, what did I do? Or God, you know, shaking his fist at God, saying, God, how could you ruin my plans? No, he takes what God has given him and says, this is my will, apparently. This is what God wills for my life. And you know what? We, we just studied this morning in, in this class uh, the part of the book where Kevin DeYoung says, I can tell you, each and every one of you, no matter who is reading this book, um, what the will of God is for your life. That sounds like a pretty amazing statement. What does he say? He quotes First Thessalonians chapter 4, and it says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Your sanctification. And that's important for us to remember. On one hand, you might say, oh, that's kind of a, a letdown. On the other hand, it shouldn't be, because it shows that no matter what happens to us, whether our plans go exactly the way we want them to, or whether they go awry and we we find ourselves in a situation where we don't know what happened and how we got here and we don't know how to get out of it, we can still follow that command. Try to, to seek to be sanctified, to follow Christ in whatever situation we're in, to witness to the best of our ability to show a Christ-like attitude, to be thankful, to be always praying. That's exactly what Paul does here. You don't get a sense at all of, of him being somebody who complains and saying, God, why am I here? He's taking this house, and it's not his. It's, it's a prison for him. But he's saying, hey, this is not just a prison. It's a place where I can host a lot of people. And they can hear about this. And, and the people are interested in hearing what he has to say. And he takes that opportunity. What situations have you been placed in Right now, where you're saying, this is not where I plan to be. If I could have had my way, um, I wouldn't be here. And it seems like things have gotten off track. 
Is it possible that perhaps the way you're viewing it now is restricting you from seeing the opportunities that God has placed right in front of you? Maybe it's time for us to think about things a little bit differently and say, you know what, this, this thing that I call a burden has maybe presented me with new opportunities that I never would have had before. What are those opportunities? How can you be sanctified and give thanks and witness where you are, even if things have gone totally awry? We can learn that from Paul here. Paul doesn't miss this chance. He summons many Jews to his house. And when they gather, Paul explains his presence in Rome. He assures them that he had not done anything against the Jews or against Jewish customs. He had not been handed over just to uh, rat on them, as it were. But he was a prisoner to the Romans, and uh, the Romans recognized that he was innocent. They wanted to release him, but in, uh, encountered strong opposition from the Jews uh, back in Judea, forcing Paul to appeal to Caesar. Paul makes it clear that he did not intend to press charges against the Jews, but only face the charges they had raised. So Paul declares his chains were due to this faith in he who he believed in to be the hope of Israel. Now remember, this is the Jews he's talking to. He's not gathering a bunch of Christians here. He's talking to the Jews who are in Rome. And here I find Paul's response to be quite amazing. Here he is face to face with those who you'd normally think are your enemies. Okay, after all, it is the Jews who put him in this particular situation. If he was thinking in terms of like me versus them, he would have not have invited these individuals to his house. Okay? So, again, I'll turn that on us. Who is it that we normally consider to be our opposition? And in doing so, how many times have we denied ourselves the opportunity to witness because we've thought of people as being against us rather than individuals who we can love and share the good news of Christ with? Paul does not hesitate one bit, even though he knows that it's the Jews who would put him here. He takes this opportunity to witness to these individuals and not treat them as his enemies. You see, uh, if we were in that situation, under house arrest, far from our home, what would we be thinking about? Probably self-preservation. Maybe bitterness. Uh, We would have probably avoided the Jews if we were Paul because we know how they responded to him in the past. But he didn't do that. And he witnessed without prejudice. This application is that don't assume you know who your enemies are. Paul didn't, and now we can see what happened. That date came, and so did a great many Jews, and some who were prominent in Rome. And for the entire day, Paul spoke of the kingdom of God, showing how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled Old Testament scriptures. And it says, from morning until evening, he preached to them. Wow, what an opportunity. Now, some were convinced, and it says some refused to believe. But that was not on Paul. He didn't get discouraged by that, knowing that it's up to the Holy Spirit to convert somebody. Now, what follows may seem harsh, but I tell you it's not. In verses 25 through 28, Paul seems to be saying, if you don't believe, um, it's just like the Bible said would happen. So, so be it. I'll go to the Gentiles if you're not going to receive me. That may sound harsh, but in reality, those are God's words, not Paul's. God gave them the chance to believe, but in some cases they refused. And so Paul decides to move on. But note something. This is not the same thing as Paul having an inner hatred for these Jewish rulers. He's just moving on so he can continue to witness. And so Paul illustrates here it's not just about the number of converts. It's not as if conversion is the measure of success. Witnessing is. And in that light, Paul is successful. 
As he continues to witness, we know from other verses of Scripture that he'll reach Nero. Did he convert him? Probably not. We don't have any sense that Nero, who was the emperor at the time, was converted. But does that mean that his trip was a failure? That it had all gone awry and was completely out of the will of God? Absolutely not, from everything that we have just observed. Last verses, verses 28 through 30. Therefore, let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. These verses describe how Paul continued the rest of his life. He made the most of what he had. Sure, he didn't have freedom, but he continued to preach as much as he could in house arrest. He used the house he had been given to welcome as many people as he could. And get this, he continued to preach boldly without hindrance. What does without hindrance mean in this passage? Well, far from hindering Paul, the prison guards actually helped Paul by serving as his bodyguards. So think of it this way. You're under house arrest, and you'd be tempted to think, this is terrible. Uh, I'm, I'm under the control of the Roman Empire. I can't do a whole lot. But if you flip it around and think of it in a different way, here, he's not in danger anymore. There's not going to be any riots in the middle of the night of people coming to, to kill him in his sleep. There's going to, not going to be people who are going to, you know, from the Jewish parties to take him away without others noticing. He's under Roman guard. He's safe. So he's able to do all the things that he was able to do before in terms of preaching in one particular location, but he's able to do it safely. And, and this is what's amazing, that even though he wasn't able to go to his original place, and this has all taken him off course, in some ways it's not. It's not off course at all. It's exactly where God wanted him to be. You know, we don't often think of trials bringing us freedom, but look at the opportunities God gave Paul through his imprisonment. Could it be that there are ways that God is blessing you, opportunities that you now have as you are suffering in some way that you never had before the trial began? Perhaps like Paul, God is using your trial, your hardship, as a way of bringing about incredible opportunities that you never had before. So here we are at the end of the book of Acts. And like I said in the beginning, it ends without a single word about Paul making it to Caesar, what he said, what the result was. What are we to make of that? Might I suggest that maybe the end of this book is not about the encounter with Caesar at all. Maybe the things that God wants us to focus on are the events and the opportunities that came before it. Maybe a life lived in consistent faithfulness is just as important, if not more important, than one grand event. Maybe God is teaching us that really we shouldn't be so focused narrowly on one goal in life, that we miss out on all the other opportunities that are presented to us. Think about how many people Paul could have ignored in chapter 27 and chapter 28 if all he was thinking about was his encounter with Nero. Go back through those chapters and count the number of people that he meets. If he was so focused on one thing, imagine how many lives wouldn't have been changed, how many he would have missed. Could it be that we could do the same thing in our own lives? Yeah, absolutely. It's good for us to have goals, and it's good for us not to meander through life with no purpose. Certainly, goals are a good thing. But let's not become so focused on one goal, whatever that might be. Maybe you're looking forward to a a certain phase of life. You know, you're saying, if I could just get to the point where I could retire, 
Or maybe I could just get to the point where the kids move out of the house. Or maybe I could just get to this point where I'm working on a project, and when that's done, then I'll feel really satisfied and proud of myself for doing something. You know, whatever that goal is for yourself, don't let it so overwhelm you, take control of you, become the sole focus of your mind, that you just ignore everything else that God is doing in your life in the meantime. Otherwise, we could end up just like um, this alternate reality of Paul if, if he had just ignored all these other people in chapter 27 and 28, missing out on all the opportunities that God gave him. What this chapter and the whole book of Acts is really about is about being faithful throughout all of life in sharing the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission in everything. Sure, Paul would stand before Caesar, but even more than that, Paul would testify to the Roman people, to the Roman people. So when it says you're going to testify in Rome, I don't want you to think of Caesar anymore when you think of it. When he says testify in Rome, he's talking about the Roman people that he would come in contact with, and that is fully described for us. He accomplished that task, and it was a greater task, in my opinion, very well. The ending of Paul's story was not to witness just to one of the most important people in the world at the time and then be done, then to ride off into the sunset, as it were. Paul's mission in life was to preach the gospel continuously, to never stop sharing Jesus with others, to be a hospitable to love his enemies, to plead with them, and to trust in God. And that's the ending of Paul's story in Acts. He continued proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching others about the Lord Jesus Christ, we can infer, to the end of his days. May it so be with us. May it be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it can be so easy for us to focus on one big event in our lives, one big goal, one thing that we just wish we could attain and become so focused on that that we lose sight of everything else that's around us. God, help us not to be blinded to all the opportunities that you put in our way, but to see every circumstance we're in, whether good or bad in our opinion, as being an opportunity to witness for Jesus Christ, to show thankfulness, to pray more fervently, and to be grateful for all that you do. God, thank you for the ending of this book. You certainly didn't leave out anything. It is not something that escaped your sight. But God, you planned it to end this way for a purpose. And thank you for the example of the life of Paul, who though he had many, many terrible things happen to him, God, he didn't allow it to dampen his spirit. He trusted in you continuously, and he used every opportunity that he was given to be a witness. And God, may it be so for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.